Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project, a podcast for maintenance and reliability people to better themselves both at home and at work. Now let's get rolling. Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. Thank you for listening to the show. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to Rob's Reliability Project on your favorite podcast platform, as well as share it with your colleagues. If you're looking for more content, check out or follow Rob's Reliability Project on LinkedIn and Facebook for some different types of content and check out robsreliability.com as well. If you're looking for a short daily audio tip, subscribe to Rob's Reliability Tip of the Day on your favorite podcast platform. As well, it's also available on Amazon Alexa as a flash briefing. So check that out. Finally, if there are any topics, guests you'd like to hear from, questions you want answered, or if you'd like to appear on the podcast, just send me an email to robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Now let's get rolling. Hey guys, I'm here with James Hunting. James Hunting has been on the podcast before, but just to recap, James is the Vice President of Reliability and Training Services at Fluid Life. James, how are you? Oh, I'm very well, Rob. Thanks for having me back. No, I'm excited. I'm, I'm always excited to have a nice talk about reliability, so it's good to go. So what I wanted to have you on today, James, was after my presentation at uh, PMAX Mainframe Conference, um, I was approached by an audience member and she asked me, um, essentially, what do reliability engineers do? Or what should they be doing? Because I guess it sounds like when I when I was presenting that her engineers were doing a lot of maintenance engineering, not reliability. I guess I guess to kick us off, like let's let's start with that. Like why do we get wrapped up in maintenance engineering? Well, I think that Rob, your question really resonates with me because I've had the t- title of reliability engineer pretty well my whole career, and yet I've only really been doing reliability engineering. Probably for half of that, and so to put that in context, about half of about twelve years or so. Yeah, and uh, it you know when I was at Petrocanon and started there, I started in projects, but then they moved me to the units and gave me the title reliability engineer, and uh, I wasn't. I was absolutely not a reliability engineer as a maintenance engineer. So I'm going to start by your question was why do we get trapped into that? It's because stuff keeps breaking, Rob, all around us, <laughs> right? And if there are bodies available to, to fix it, then you will be pulled to do that, to get things going again, is my thought, right? Reactive maintenance is still surprisingly high out in industry, despite all this information about reliability um, in literature these days, right? The truth is, is people still struggle to get out of that reactive, maybe a bit of preventative mindset. Yeah. And so... Uh, the another story that I sometimes hear quite a bit when I'm doing some of my training is the fact that sometimes if you're a maintenance young engineer, you're trying to make your name, you're in the reliability role, but there's a maintenance failure malfunction. You can look like quite a hero if you jump in, fix it, get it going again, and then you get all the pats on the back and the rah-rah. Yeah. It's that immediate acute uh, feedback that makes you feel good as a young engineer and, and that you're making some uh, significant impacts whereas I feel that reliability engineers is kind of the opposite of that as opposed to, as opposed to being in an acute 
problem-solving day-to-day thing. It's more of a chronic, slow, measured approach to make things better over the long term, right? Yeah, like let's dive into that, right? So one of the concepts of my talk at, at uh, the Main Train Conference was that we need to start off with kind of understanding what the failures mean for our business. Like if we go, if we step back to our ISO 55,000, 55,002 right now, we got to start with our business goals. And then if we can look at each piece of equipment and how their failures or maybe they're just not operating at 100%, mm-hmm. uh, any of that suboptimal uh, operating context, if we, can, if we can look at those and say, this is the size of the pie for each one of these, we can easily quantify what should we start working on first and then what should we do next. And even we could make an argument, like let's say we had three guys and we filled up their year. Well, if the fourth guy that we don't have, like maybe his like value add would be $500,000, then we can absolutely justify hiring another guy, right? Right, right. Again, though, you're going to struggle with that $500,000 of value add might be the lack of spending $500,000, right? Yeah. Uh, and that is a difficult thing to put in front of someone to make a decision to spend real money on. Yeah. Is the fact that you're going to not spend 500000 Well, how do you know? Where's the proof? Where's the? This is something that, in my experience, reliability right struggles from. Um, and, and you're right. So, uh, I'm, again, I'm thinking about younger uh, EITs or young engineers who've been put into a role of reliability, and they're told, look, yeah, we are going to protect you. You're not going to have to do maintenance work. Just make our plant better go, right? Where do you start? That, that's, a, that's a difficult thing to do. So you talked about um, looking at the size of the pie for, for the, uh, what the engineers could do to make things better. And I think that's important. You know, things like Pareto, something as simple as a bad actor list, yeah. uh, a starting point so that a reliability engineer can sink their teeth into making improvements and get things going. Um, otherwise, it's nebulous to me, right? So that quantification based on cost, right, because everything comes down to that, right off the bat is, is so important. And um, it's something that took me a while to, to understand. Um, I also found very quickly that reliability engineers, and I'm sure you've talked about this on your other podcasts, I know you have, can make big impacts, things like spares optimization. Um, if people don't know where to start, um, that's one place that yields millions of dollars off yeah. in savings quickly. And you can look at failure rates, and that could be another thing to get you going. And and so when when the supervisor comes and said, "Okay, Rob, I've hired you. You're a reliability engineer. What have you done for us lately?" Right? You can point to, well, these are the problems that I see that you're having yeah. that should resonate with them. Right? Yes, you're right. We that pump in the our sulfur plant, that multi-stage centrif has been cratered twice on us, and we don't know why. Um, just based on failure rate, hopefully they, the reliability engineer will have identified that and put a plan in place in order to tackle it. So, um, But th- of course there are some good books that can lead you to where to start, but I think some reliability engineers, given the title, struggle with. There's so many problems, where do I begin? I mean, it's to me it, it always comes back to the data, right? And it's like if you don't have any data at your site, I mean, it's 2019 right now, so 
you should have access to that stuff. But it, let's say you don't have the granularity, then you might have to kind of jury rig your way through it. Mm-hmm. But in my opinion, like if you can get downtime and it's attributed to the right equipment or you can get maintenance expenditures, mm-hmm. like you'll be able to figure out what's going on and be able to prioritize a list. It may not be the you know, the absolute 100% correct list. Mm-hmm. But again, like if you're 80%, like if your list is half decent, at least you're working with a plan. You're not starting with the lowest thing. You're starting with something that's pretty bad. Yeah. There are multiple ways to rank things on a bad actor list alone, for instance. I don't know what your favorite would be, but there's number of failures, criticality, cost of downtime, or a mix of all of them based on overall risk, which I think is probably the best, right? Yeah, I mean, risk is, at the end, like we've talked about this um, a lot, and, and it's it's risk at the end of the day, right? We need to quantify what risk is in dollars amount, right? Like even if we're talking about safety or environment, those are both dollar risk. Like in uh, financial consulting, we used to do, like one of the projects I worked on was um, just outside of Ottawa, they were looking to build a, instead of a prison, they were looking to build kind of a psych- psychiatric hospital for females with um, mental problems. Um, instead of they would be just going to jail like they would have normally, mm. they would also, well, they would get treatment at that facility. And so we were looking at like, what's the value of instead of sending this person to jail versus sending them to a psychiatric facility to get them help, right? And, like, it's a pretty abstract concept, right? If we're thinking about, like, a cost perspective, well, it costs more to build this hospital, like, to build a hospital and to house people and have doctors and that kind of stuff than it is to just put them in jail, right? But, you know, like, if you look at social cost, which is the actual, like, economic word that we use for it, you, you can value stuff like we were looking at, like, um, the quality of life for their kids, their uh, their family, like it should be increased because these people are, you know, getting help versus not. So all this stuff, like in reliability, like safety, you know, a life has a value. If you kill somebody at your site, it has a value. A lot of the ways, like it's, it's touchy. Some people don't like to talk about it, but it does. Mm-hmm. And we just have to translate that into dollars so then you can rank and you can rank it next to a production loss, right? Because if we go to the safety guy and we say, hey, like what's what's an LTI worth? And we go to, you know, the operations guy and we say, well, this pump fails, like what happens? Right now, if we don't, if we don't align those in terms of the same, like we're comparing an apple to an orange, and obviously to the safety guy, safety is more important, and to the operations guy, operations more important. Yes, you just hinged on something or clued into something that I think is quite critical too, is who's your audience, yeah. right? And I, I suffered a lot from this in particular when I was uh, early in my career. Um, I worked in a, in the utilities pumping and shipping area uh, of a refinery and. Uh, my uh, maintenance coordinator was excellent, excellent pipe fitter, uh, 25 plus years of experience. But you see, reliability was a buzzword at the time. Yeah. And um, 
I remember very clearly conversations where he would uh, say, you know, James, it's time to do the um, one of the stacks again. I won't mention which one. Uh, one of the tallest stacks in the refinery got it painted again. And, uh, you know, every time we have to paint this thing, I have to scaffold all the way up there, and it costs us a ton of money. Mm -hmm. I would like you to put it in a project, a charter for a project to put a good painter's ring up there that would... Uh, reduce the need for that expense every time. Mm -hmm. And he would always follow it up with, this is a reliability issue. <laughs> and hence, you're a reliability engineer, so I can use your time and I can use the budget allocated to reliability for this. Now, when I think about the risk of having the scaffold up or the risk of having a painter's ring there, I don't see much difference. There's certainly a cost associated with it. Yeah. But I don't think we're going to improve the availability of that stack. I don't think we're going to... Uh, do anything with a failure rate of that stack and things like that. But I didn't know much better, and so I was pulled into doing these kinds of things. You know, boardwalks around the cooling tower so it's easier for the operators to walk. It's slippery, it's wet, yeah. it's muddy, right? James, that's a reliability issue, and I could <laughs> and I should have pushed back. So when it, when you're to go back to your original question of what's a reliability engineer, um, I think it's important to know that so that when you have operators maintenance coordinators, people coming to you with their idea of what it should be and what projects should be done. You can you can push back appropriately and you can allow yourself the time to focus on things that will make a true impact. Yeah. I don't know if you had that experience when you were working at tech. Um, I mean, for me, what the big thing was, was the everyday failure. I could never escape it, even though like I was not based at a site. I was based at a kind of a centralized location, which was, you know, 45 minutes to an hour from the sites. Um, I would still get the question from uh, the general manager. He would come down and he'd say, this engine on this haul truck, why did it fail today? And you'd go, I don't know, and I don't know why you're thinking about it, because he was the general manager of operating excellence. Like, And it's, it's more like the maintenance engineer at that site should be concerned about that. Right. Not somebody who's supposed to be dealing with the future. And maybe the question was, is there a pattern in this failure to others that would indicate that we may have to look at other engines uh, with respect to this particular issue, which might lead to a long-term reliability question. Absolutely. But it's the way it was asked and it was what you're asked to do, which was to immediately find a fix and and give an excuse to someone that they can give it to higher up as well to explain what's going on. Absolutely. And and like we did spend, like I spent a lot of my time looking at, you know, engines specifically on haul trucks and like their failure rates and their patterns and doing risk on them and trying to figure out why they would fail and that kind of stuff. That's a better question. Like yeah. those are, that's reliability to me versus looking at just the one-off failure. And that's kind of like if we get back into the like the ranking stuff, doing a Pareto and really doing the, you know, the dollar value each, you know, for this period of time. Like if we get back into that, um, another thing to mention is a lot of people's bad actor lists or their Pareto charts, they may be like monthly or weekly. That's going to give you the wrong answer for a lot of the time, right? Like we need to be looking at either a year um, I even talked to a guy at the PMAC conference after as well, and he said, you know, we're looking at our facilities, like what time frame should we be looking at? And you could say, like, as long as you think the building will last, mm -hmm. right? Like if you were looking at a mine, like if you could, if you could quantify it until the end of the mine's life, 
that's that's probably the best way to go. It's it's so fascinating. The the refinery I was at was a Bechtel plant, and they've built many around the world, obviously. And yeah. um, and I once inquired as to what, what what was the life cycle that was anticipated when this refinery was built in the 1950s, mm-hmm. and it's 25 year life, 25 year life. Meanwhile, early 2000s, right, and <laughs> 2010s, it's still operating and expected to operate for quite a bit longer. So, yeah, yeah it's. Um, you know, history is your is your best friend. Limitations that I've found, though, despite the fact that I, had a, I was working at a 60-plus-year-old refinery, is that we had an SAP um, uh, installation, you know, to take over as our, uh, as our uh, CMMS. And history only went back as far as when that CMMS was installed, yep. right? Yep. So a lot of it had been lost, and it was really only a, a couple of years' worth of data to work with. But it's it's so important finding the time, yeah. So time frame is important. Again, what is a reliability engineer versus a maintenance engineer? When you had the failure on that engine, did you have the time and were you given the ability to do a full RCA or a, a proper somewhat investigation onto it that would feed into understanding the root causes? No. Right. Another thing I found is when something fails, people want it fixed, and then they want to move on, right? Rarely do they want to step back and understand the failure, like do a proper root cause, try and figure out what happened so it won't happen again. People know that's important. They know it's something they got to do, but I'll tell you what, their bonus is tied to production numbers that they got to hit in a couple months, right? And that RCA doesn't seem important at the time. And again, there's a lot of cultures that are at different places. I'm hearing improvements in terms of people allowed to do some good RCA work and get that information tied back into their PM plans, for instance, right? Um, but I still hear people that struggle with that a lot. Yeah, one other thing, like we had some work do a, being done, uh, like people were doing RCAs, you know, FMEAs, RCMs, like that kind of work, and then it, it wasn't being disseminated from one site to another, even though the equipment's the same, the operating context is pre- essentially the same, and it's like, you're destroying value by not having that be standard operating practice across all sites, right? And I, I even thought that a lot of the RCAs that were done, they would go in a book on a shelf and yeah. nothing really changed. Yeah. And that's another thing is like, it's fun to do the exercise. Like we learn stuff as the guy who's facilitating or the guy who writes the report. But if we don't put it into practice and we don't actually change what we do, like. What did we? We just had a fun exercise. We didn't really affect reliability. And this is sometimes why even the reliability engineer will be drawn towards doing the maintenance type of work because again, it's where the glory is, right? Yeah. That RCA might feel good when you get the smoking gun and then you got your list of actions, but those list of actions then go into an Excel list somewhere, and they, they don't get followed up on, right? Yeah. And that's to me, that's where the gold is. It's like, it's like this the. Uh, Feedback you get on a work order that's returned, that is reliability gold. What was the as-found condition when you went to do this PM? Was it fine? If so, you're doing it too often. Yeah. Um, if it was terrible, then maybe you're not doing it often enough, right? So you can iterate and optimize PM intervals. If you have a failure, Rob, um, and you need to do an RCA, what does that tell you? To me, that says that your plan to maintain that asset, to have it run reliability, is not correct or it missed something. Now maybe 
operator error, right? There, there, or there could be conditions that that's not the, the case. But often, it's information saying, look, maybe you're not optimizing your PM uh, strategy for this asset. Uh, it's time to stop and see and think as to why this unexpected failure occurred. Mm-hmm. Once you understand it, you can go back and uh, and do a PMO type of exercise, exercise and optimize your PMs for that asset, and then hopefully never repeat it again. Yeah, I've seen. Uh, all kinds of quotes in reliability about the fact that proactive fourth generation maintenance thinking is about not allowing a failure to happen twice, yeah. right? Don't let it fail the same way twice. And um, the only way you can do that is by fully understanding that failure in the first place, in my experience. But mm-hmm. anyway, no, that's I mean that's right. Like it's it's one of those things, right? Like we talk um, again. It's for for me though, another thing we talked about with Bob Latino about root cause analysis is just like those trigger conditions. Like, where when should we do an RCA? And I think like a lot of those trigger conditions, they're like if we quantified it over an annual basis, like a lot of the times the root cause analysis is you're probably not going to decide to do it. Right. Like let's say we had a transformer failure and it cost us, you know, a hundred million. Yeah. But the transformer lasts twenty years. Like, what did it really cost us in terms of risk? Five million dollars annually. Mm-hmm. But if we had a, you know, a gearbox failure monthly and it was a million bucks a pop, you know, we're doing twelve million dollars worth of risk. So what really should we be working on? Yeah. The gearbox failure, not yeah. the art, not the the big one. That's that's absolutely true. That's brilliant. Um, it's it's likely that the transformer failure uh, occurred in a manner that is very well understood and, and is yeah. quite obvious. But yeah, uh, people are scared of RCM RCAs. They think of them as big, huge exercises that you know you can almost hear the groan when you mention let's do the, a quick yeah. RCA or RCM. They don't have to be that way at all, right? I'm sure uh, there are multiple levels of those types of uh, exercises um, and people tend to if there was major production loss or there's potential injury of course it triggers it very quickly but your reliability engineer may not know when to do one on a pump that's gone down a couple times they don't quite understand why it doesn't have a major impact but it does keep taking the maintenance uh, resources away to fix I can think of one that we had uh, at a refinery I worked at that had a couple pumps that would run hot and it was a varying pressure that built up over time as they pushed against it and um, and they didn't know why but they had to have a valve and bypass in order for them those valves to run, uh, the pumps to run properly. Pre-VFDs, probably off their curves, right? But, but um, to take, and we just dealt with it. Every time we knew everybody, every six months we'd have to go back and and uh, and deal with those pumps that would overheat and cause a lot of damage to the motors. Um, no one took the time to understand the root cause of it and just dealt with it that way. Uh, I guess it depends how much time you've got, right, to get into the nitty gritty. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess another question. So, you know, like if we Pareto out these failures and we find that we have a lot of, you know, like we pick the, the top few that we can handle. Now, how do we decide what type of reliability analysis or project we should do on it? Like, should we do RCM? Should we do RCA? Like, what, what kind of, how do we decide that? Hmm. 
Well, that's an excellent question. I think it, it goes to the how well do we think we understand what's happening, right? Yeah. If if they're really there's a guess, but it's not if it's not obvious or clear, if they're not having to pull all the bitumen out of the impellers because it's all gunked up every time they take it apart, right? Um, then it would warrant maybe some further investigation with a technique like root cause analysis. Um, if they find that they've got something that continues to fail uh, and it hasn't been examined for a long time, it's an old compressor that's been there for years and years, then I would be tempted to look at a, more of a, a quick RCM type of exercise that did we, the assumptions we made when we put this PM program together for this asset, are they still valid? Yeah. Have we done de-bottlenecking since, which will change the operating conditions of the asset? Is it, is it um, still in the operating context it was when it was installed, or is there a bunch, is now in an indoor building and, and uh, it runs hotter now because the building's physically warmer than it used to be when it was outdoors and first installed? Like, if there's some piece of equipment that hasn't been touched in a long time, then I think it's worth revisiting with a bit of a deeper PMO or root or RCM types type of exercise. If it's just a bunch of failures on a piece of equipment that you don't understand, then I'd go more for an RCA. Yeah, and I think... What do you think? I think that's a great point, and I think that, like, one thing that we need to kind of get out of our minds as reliability people is that reliability is only maintenance, right? Like... And that's the that's kind of the one thing that I, I see when a lot of people do like a, like a RCM is they're looking at the maintenance program because that's kind of what you're supposed to do. But we also need to look at you know our operating context. You know, like Jeff Smith, he he told me this example um, when we were working together at Tech, and it was like he had gone to a plant, not it wasn't a Tech plant, but a different one uh, previously, and they had like pressure vegetables and they would expand and contract based on the pressure and they were supposed to last 10 years or something and you know they were having some problems and they didn't they couldn't figure out why and what happened was instead of them expanding and contracting on one frequency they had doubled the frequency hmm. and so obviously they were failing more quickly half the life or potentially or something yeah right so it's it's like it's something where if you were looking at it from an RCM perspective, maybe you would not determine that. You would be looking at the maintenance program, or, and you'd probably end up doing like NDT or something. You could mm -hmm. figure out the thickness, and that would be fine. But maybe you wouldn't actually understand the the actual cause itself, which is that your operating context has changed. Yeah, no question. And you're just reminding me of a, of a young engineer that's in reliability, surrounded by 20-year-plus operators, millwrights, uh, fitters, you know. Um, and the temptation or, or the fear is, is that you don't know as much as others, right? And so you're intimidated to ask questions around, like, the fact that the pressure vessel may be uh, experiencing cycling more frequently than it was designed for, right? Mm -hmm. You would, especially, maybe I'm talking, I should talk about myself. I, as a young guy, would maybe hesitate to ask, to tell somebody that I was suspicious of this when I know that there are inspectors and, and designers that built this thing and probably would have known about this or would have thought about this, right? Yeah. I would have been tempted to not have enough faith in my own ability or in my youngness 
to, to bring up that question. What I'm trying to get at here, Rob, is that there's actually, it's not a bad position to be in to play the naive uh, young person as well, or who, no, everyone's not an expert on everything. So, so you can ask the questions. What about this, right? Uh, I'm sure the designers thought about this, but is it a possibility that this thing may be cycling more frequently? Or did they consider the fact that, you know, I've looked at the control valve uh, on this on this pressure line, and uh, it seems to be cycling more frequently than they thought. Is it possible it's having an effect on the vessel? Like, what you can do is you can, don't, don't be afraid to ask the questions is what I'm trying to say. Absolutely, absolutely. Right. Like, like it's that's one thing, like, I think, um, sometimes you can feel like you're stupid or whatever, but, yeah. but at the end of the day, like if you understand what you know and what you don't know, like that's actually the mark, I, th I forget who said it, it was like maybe Einstein or something, but he's like, that's the, that's the mark of like a genius, which is like, you understand your limitation, you understand what you don't know and you ask or you outsource the stuff that you don't know. Mm -hmm. And you may be surprised to find out that others probably don't know as well, right? Everybody wants to look at it and doesn't want to admit it, but if you ask it in the right way, you find out that no one's quite sure, right? Yeah. And it's worth looking into. That's that's advice I'd give my young self if I could, right? Is uh, don't assume. Don't assume that everyone else knows and that you don't. Yeah, I also, I mean, one thing on, on like facilities and reliability and all that is if you just hire like a young reliability guy who's a couple of years in the business or fresh out of school and you call him a reliability engineer, but you don't have a reliability manager or leader, um, you're going to have a problem yeah. because they don't, they won't understand like kind of how to schedule their time or how to deal with or even necessarily know what to do, right? right? And so... If you're just gonna, if you're at a facility and you're reliable, or you are the reliability guy, you know, like feel free to reach out to me, myself, absolutely, or you know, I can put you in contact with a lot of people. But yeah. it's you, you can't, like, you don't go at it alone, right? Like this stuff is, it takes a lot of time. Like we're still learning. Like I am for sure. James, you are, I'm sure as well. All the time, Rob. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I think reliability engineer does require some maturity, right, and some exposure to have seen different things. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't mean you can't have someone junior in the group, but mentorship would be important, just like you said, right? Uh, there, there seems to be this uh, temptation to put younger, well, and maybe it's because I'm an older guy, Rob, but when I was young, they were putting people into these reliability roles. We weren't ready. Really, we really weren't. Uh, it, it doesn't hurt to spend some time around uh, senior uh, uh, technical folk of all kinds, right? Um, to, to glean as much as you possibly can, spend some time with operations if you're fortunate enough to do that, and, and see all the different aspects about how that asset is, is maintained and managed and operated, and, uh, and learn ways then that it may not be doing its optimal job, and, and that's your in to try and make things better, right? Yeah, I mean, when I started my career, I mean, reliability engineering at tech was like fairly new thing and most of the the actual engineers themselves were young you know they were all engineers out of like mechanical whatever mining engineers yeah all bright people and like you know they were all young but we were lucky to have you know a few experienced people who were managing and kind of kind of setting the priorities yeah but the longer i've stayed in the career the more i understand that 
you know like it's you can't do reliability behind a desk you like yeah you can do a lot of the analysis and you can do you know the math or whatever but you actually have to go out there and talk to people because that's where you're going to find your sustainable change yeah i i all i'm going to say is i couldn't agree more just absolutely agree with that 100 percent uh i've learned most of what i learned from a a group of super specialists that I worked with at one plant, uh, and I'll, I value that time very, very highly. And it was me walking around, watching them do what they did, right? Yeah. Uh, unbelievable. So having said that, uh, there are a lot of outfits that have uh, reliability uh, consultants and, and the ability to help, um, starting with understanding your risk, which might be a criticality analysis. What, what are your riskiest components, right? Um, and then moving on to looking at your current PMs, where'd they come from? Out of the blue? Were they vendor recommendations? Uh, was it based on good experience? Was it was failures of that equipment taken into account? And, and were those PMs changed? Were the PMs updated based on feedback from um, technicians that went out into the field to, to maintain that equipment, right? Yeah. Um, all these questions uh, can lead you to do a good PMO or uh, if you want to take the time to sit down in a room for a day or two, you can look at an asset in an RCM type of uh, facilitation exercise. All the things that we do here, right? Um, spare parts optimization as a part of either a PMO, like on a small scale, uh, or just for one particular asset, or as part of a larger RCM type of exercise, right? It can all be done as well. So. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess, like the last question I have, or the last kind of thing I want to talk about is just like, when we look at reliability, um, a lot of places I go, or even, you know, before they say like, we want to be world class, or we want to be top quartile, or whatever, like whatever that means. Um, and, and kind of what I want to get people to think about is, like when we talk about, like when people talk about goal setting, whether that's I want to lose 10 pounds or I want to uh, run a marathon or whatever that is, you know, we talk about like smart goals, which are like your uh, specific, item, measurable, yeah, achievable, realistic, time-based. Yeah. So, so those are kind of the way you need to start. And so if we just say like, hey, we want to be world-class and reliability, we're probably never going to get there because we don't know what that means. Right. But if we say, hey, we want to be, uh, you know, we want to have uh, maintenance cost divided by uh, re replacement asset value of 2%, um, then we can do, or we understand what that is, and we can kind of work towards getting there. Right. So that's kind of where I want to start, like just understand what that goal is, and then also like take a walk around your plant and look around. Look what it looks like, like general housekeeping to me, like, and all the facilities I go to, it's, it, it's pretty terrible across the board, to be honest. I mean, I understand the operating conditions. Sometimes you're producing, you know, cement or coal dust or whatever, but just general stuff like you're putting the tools away, you're putting them back where they're supposed to be, your shop is, is, you know, like you don't have wires hanging on the middle of the floor, stuff like that. Like, you're gonna find improvements just based on small stuff that you can walk around. Even as somebody who doesn't really 
maybe you don't know a lot about reliability, but if you walk around with a critical eye, you can find stuff that should be obvious that people have just let slip. Yeah. Yes. It's an excellent set of eyes, like second set of eyes to look at and see those small changes that can add up. From a continuous improvement perspective or lean type of philosophy, there's lots you can do or just simply just walking around like you said. Uh, you don't have to have that uh, degree. I mean, the reliability engineers out there that want to make their availability 98% within a couple months, right, is, is um, admirable, but like I said, reliability is chronic, right? And for me, small steps, small successes leading to more buy-in to the slow culture change piece to get your greater uh, access to people to help you do PMOs and get better than availability, reliability of assets. And then to me, it's a snowball long-term uh, effect. It is, yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, start small, small wins, like walking around your plant, seeing fresh set of eyes. I love that, Rob. Yeah, no, I mean, one thing, like, I, there's, I mean, one thing, you know, on that snowball kind of idea is, like, in our, uh, like, during our lubrication audit, there's a, there's a thing we look at, and it's like, does the lube room have a lock on the door? And the world class is, it has a lock on the door. Mm -hmm. My opinion is to get from poor to good or average you want to lock on the door. But to get from good or average to world-class, it needs to be a culture, and you won't need a lock on the door. Yeah, that's excellent. Well said. Expand on that, if you don't mind. Well, I just see that as, like, if we're going to get to, like a lot of people now, they're talking about this, uh, you know, TPM approach where there's autonomous maintenance. or, But at the end of the day, it comes down to trust and education in your people. Well, you need the lock in the first place to manage who's going in and out of the lube room so that you know how much lube's been taken or where that lubricant has gone yeah. or so that people don't open a grease tube and take out a little bit and then put the cap back on. But ultimately, I think what you're saying is when people understand why. Why is that important? What does that do to our equipment? Why does lubricant need to be kept clean, cool, and dry and stored in a, in a, a location where it's first in, first out usage. Once people understand that why, then you don't need the lock because they'll be behind you too. And yeah, and I, I see it as everything, right? Like, it's not just lubrication, it's everything, right? Like, if we want to lock up our toolboxes, which they do at some sites, right? Like, we shouldn't worry about somebody taking you know, our favorite wrench and not returning it, right? Like it's a culture thing. Mm -hmm. It's, we trust people, we've educated them so they understand like what they need to do and kind of have the level of respect that they would put it back. Yeah. And that's how I see it being, it, you know, it's no different than, you know, if you have a fridge in the lunchroom, right? Like I shouldn't have to worry that someone's gonna eat my lunch. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like some, some places you do, right? It's like some places you do. Absolutely. <laughs> so, you know, like, let's wrap up here. So I guess on the note, right, so we've been looking at some some projects lately with, uh, you know, like reliability projects. you want to give us a little breakdown of, of some of the new projects that Fluid Life can do for people? Sure. Well, certainly um, we're having success in, in RCM work because of the fact that 
we don't scare people off by coming in to say we're going to do this plant and 150 assets, right? Uh, well, we've had some success uh, in some plants that are interested, they know it's important, and we say give us five, ten, somewhere in there, a couple assets that you'd like us to look at for you, do an RCM, show you what the advantage and the benefits of doing that are, and then you can decide whether or not that is a value to you, and you can do it for whatever other assets that you'd like. Uh, that's been really successful for us. PMO is something that you, uh, people seem to struggle with. Again, they know it's important. It's something that should be done on occasion to analyze the uh, tasks that you're doing to maintain your assets, a smaller scale kind of RCM. And um, uh, again, that's something that we can offer and has had big impact for uh, some customers because they just don't have the time or the interest or the, well, it's not the interest, it's it's just the time, really, to sit down and do it themselves, right? So that's something else we can do and we can offer. Spare parts optimization for me is, is always such a big win. It's ridiculous the ROI oh, yeah, on that absolutely. kind of stuff. It's, it always is just mind-boggling how much money you can save somebody by going through their warehouse and making sure they got the right spares and the right quantity and they understand reorder uh, quantities and econo economic order points and sort of reorder points and economic order qualities is what I meant to say there. And um, it's something that we can do and, and offer people as, again, as just on a small scale part as, a, as part of a full-out RCM. Um, criticality analysis is somewhere that you should start if you don't have that done and something that we excel at here. Um, where do I start? From a reliability perspective, well, you start with your stuff that's carrying the greatest risk or is of uh, the most importance to you and the way that you understand and you generate that list is by doing a criticality analysis so absolutely that's a good way to start uh, with that of course uh, we've talked about it even today root cause analysis is another tool that's um, important for understanding your failures so that you don't do it again uh, proactive maintenance fourth generation thinking never let the fail the same way twice so uh, root cause analysis can be done at a very uh, low level or it can be done for, uh, I've done them myself, at large facilities with international teams where there was potential fatality. So we, we have a lot of experience here and can do uh, any of them for you. And of course, we love the tool that uh, Bob Latino has. Uh, the Proact methodology is the main one, but we do have a, the ability to do others as well. So. Absolutely. And I guess the last thing that we also do that we've started to offer and had success with is uh, mobile remote planning. Yes. Um, so that's another thing that we do that I'm not sure a lot of people listening would be aware of. It's, it's surprising, uh, but, but of such value to people in certain industries, um, resources can be tight. Planning, as you know, Rob, uh, makes a tremendous impact on the efficiency of maintenance activities, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. And uh, it's, I'm going to be honest here, that's been a surprise success uh, in the fact that uh, we've been able to plan for some major customers and have an impact on, on uh, their maintenance um, and uh, in all kinds of different industries. So uh, that's something that, yeah, that has been a really eye-opening for me, but it just makes sense because uh, once you've got uh, access to sort of the data and you're planning for somebody, that means that you can also start to do some analysis and determine when the tasks you're doing are optimal or not. And it just kind of all fits together really nicely. So. It's all part of reliability. <laughs> it really is. It really is. Yeah, It's the little wheel that, that generates all the data for you to make things better.
Awesome. So, yeah, so everyone, you know, I appreciate you listening um, in terms of things that you should check out. You know, you should check out fluidlife.com. Uh, you can find more information on that stuff, or you can just reach out to myself. Or me. Or James. Um, yeah, absolutely. We, we can definitely point you in the right direction. If you have any questions about reliability or what your reliability engineers be doing, absolutely reach out. It, it can be for anything, just for a chat, just for what's your experience. Uh, happy to have that conversation. Absolutely. Uh, in terms of stuff that's coming up that I will be at, the only one I have on the books right now is Maintenance Con in Chicago in April 2019. That's it. I'm sure we'll also be hitting the Main Train Conference, but that'll be in September in Edmonton. So if you're in town for that, definitely let me know because we can have a di have dinner or something we can hang out